welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 33, recorded on July 30th, 2019, announcing the new Cloud Pod Cuddle. Hey guys, how's it going this evening? A long trek home. How about you, Justin? Yeah, it was a bit of a commute uh, this evening for me as well. I have the exact opposite commute. Well, actually, just completely different area, and it was identical. Two huge wrecks somewhere. Couldn't get home. You know, there's a lot of other wrecks that we should be talking about in the show tonight, oh. so let's, uh, let's maybe get to it. <laughs> uh, so first of all, we, uh, we talked about the new uh, party or festival that Amazon was going to throw at reInvent. Uh, there has apparently appeared a new website, uh, intersect.aws, which has information uh, about the new music festival. Apparently, uh, which we missed last time, it's going to be Friday and Saturday night. I guess is how the dates work out on that, because it's December 6th through 7th. Oh, the end. Uh, yeah, the very end. So it sounds like the normal reInvent party will be on Thursday, or on Thursday the 5th, and then on Saturday and sun, uh, Friday and Saturday night will be the Intersect uh, Festival. So it'll probably be an additional ticket. Uh, you can win VIP passes, though, to... Uh, to the boxes and stuff. So it sounds like basically what I, what I think's happened is that Amazon's realized the cost of setting up a one day, uh, reinvent play party, replay party is too expensive. And so to spread that cost out, they will now sell tickets to two other nights and basically make this a much more uh, cost effective event. I think is kind of what's happened here. If I were to be reading the tea leaves in any way uh, about this. Mm, I think so. And there's no mention of Intel either, who are the prime sponsors of the, uh, replay party before. So maybe they pulled out. Yeah, or, or they just only care about Thursday night. So I mean, but Apple just bought their modem business for a lot of money, so they have money to pay for the party. There you go. The problem is, <laughs> well, uh, it's earnings season, our favorite time of the year here for Q2. So we'll start off with Amazon. So Amazon shares dip, missing profit expectations as the tech giant posts 63.4 billion in Q2 revenue. Uh, apparently, this was not what the analysts expected. Uh, they only expected 62 and a half, but the analysts were unhappy about uh, the price per, uh, profitability per share, which only came in at. Uh, five twenty-two per share when they expected it to be five dollars fifty-seven cents. So, because the analysts are po- bad at their job, Amazon stock uh, definitely was impacted uh, about eight to ten percent uh, in the day after the earnings announced. So, uh, good times. But the uh, interesting part for us here at the CloudPod, of course, is the cloud business, uh, which was up apparently thirty-seven percent at eight point four billion, uh, with two point one billion in operating income coming from the Amazon Web Services business. Uh, revenue items, Amazon Web Services did miss expectations slightly as, uh, again, the analysts were bad at their job, expected $8.5 million, <laughs> uh, versus $8.4. Uh, and Amazon is now counting, or AWS is now counting for 13% of Amazon's revenue and 67% of total operating income for Amazon.com. So uh, Amazon uh, continues to need AWS to help their numbers in a big way. I think we need to have a word with these analysts. I mean, $63.4 billion <laughs> in revenue <laughs> and, and the stock dips. <laughs> It's just, it's just insane. I think we need to have a talk with Jeff Bezos and be like, why are you bothering with the retail business? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm sure that the Q3 numbers are going to be huge because didn't they have one of the best prime days they've had ever? Wasn't that the announcement I heard? So, I, I mean, I'm sure their Q3 revenue numbers are going to be just fine. Yeah. They didn't suffer any huge outages or uh, have to implement the cheesy, you know, sorry, we can't load this page animations like they had last year or the year before. So I guess that, that's a good start. Well, moving on to Azure, who also announced theirs. Uh, well, actually, Microsoft did. You know, Azure doesn't break their numbers out quite the same way. Uh, Microsoft trumpets a record year, as this was the end of their fiscal year as well, of $126 billion in avenue, annual revenue of 14%, uh, as well as quarterly profits beat their estimates. 
uh, making Microsoft, of course, the most valuable company, uh, still posting healthy growth rates. Uh, they have been a trillion-dollar company since April, and I'll stay that way for the time being if they continue these results. Uh, Q4 revenue was up uh, 12% to $33.7 billion, with operating income uh, of $12.4 billion, or up 20%. Uh, and then the Intelligent Cloud Division, which includes Office 65, uh, Azure, and other businesses, uh, was apparently up 19% to $11.4 billion of their revenue, uh, powered by 64% annual revenue growth rate for Azure. The 20% increase in operating income. That's a, incredible for a company that big. Yeah, and these are just crazy numbers. But this is the first time the uh, cloud divisions actually brought in more revenue than either the productivity and business unit or the personal computing unit. Um, and so that's a pretty big shift in their business to the cloud. You know, there was some debate on Twitter I saw about this, you know, because Amazon doesn't really have a document service or email service or anything that uh, Google and Azure count in their cloud revenue. And so some people were saying, is that really fair? And my, my thought was, well, if <laughs> Azure's revenue for their cloud was as big as Amazon's, they would be touting that. So I think it's fine for them to be separate still. <laughs> I always have the asterisk next to Azure and Google that, you know, that includes Google Cloud rates as well as uh, Office 365 and those numbers. And then uh, Google uh, announced their earnings. Google CEO Sundar Pichai announced that the GCP unit now has an $8 billion annual run rate, up from the $4 billion it reported in early 2018. Uh, report point at AWS at a 30 billion run rate versus Azure at 11 billion. So 8 billion is not that far off, only about 3 million uh, difference. Uh, Sundar said Q2 was another strong quarter for Google Cloud, which reached an annual revenue rate of over 8 billion and continues to grow at a significant pace. Customers are choosing Google Cloud for a variety of reasons, including reliability and uptime are critical. Retailers like Lowe's are leveraging the cloud as one of the important tools to transform their customer experience and supply chain. So when they when they talk about an annual run rate of eight billion, what they're really talking about is two billion dollar quarterly. That is grass. Okay, so <laughs> compare that with uh, Amazon at sixty three point four and Microsoft at what was was that huge number? Well, I mean, but you had to look at just the cloud run rate. So this is eight billion for the yeah. cloud business. Azure versus five billion is eleven billion, and then Amazon's annual run rate is thirty billion. So I mean, they're yeah. they're not that far off, but they're still you know not in the same league. Yeah, they're 25%. That's good, though. It's enough. I think it makes them a very healthy third player. Uh, but Alphabet overall you know, had 90% increase in revenues year over year, with their operating margin increasing from 9% to 24% on $9.18 in operating income. So net-net, I think these cloud businesses are very profitable for these companies. The margins are quite healthy, and they can hide a lot of other sins in the business units uh, with, with these products. So overall, the cloud strategy is working really well for these companies. Yeah, I kind of think Google aren't really trying just yet. Or maybe... Uh... Maybe they're starting to try hard, but I don't think they've really put much effort into it. I think in the next year, it's going to change completely. I expect that they're going to continue to grow like gangbusters over the next year or two. Yeah. Um, you know, their focus on enterprise, their their desire to do um, a much bigger business in this space, the ability to get into enterprise accounts with their sales team is getting better. I think they have more opportunities in the future than ever before. I'm super, you know, the one headwind I see them having potentially is uh, the big if, is if... Amazon gets pressured enough and spins off AWS because then the retailers won't uh, conceivably won't uh, consider AWS uh, a competitor. That forcing function still, like we talked about last week, is a couple years yeah. away at best for the, the DOJ to get done through an antitrust thing and come up with a settlement. Um, so it, it's quite a ways. Unless, <laughs> unless, it, unless Amazon makes the decision that that, it, the comp, that that portion of the company is more valuable, spun off on their own. I've seen a bunch of articles in the last week uh, about that exact topic and and you know based on just the amount of 
margin that the AWS business unit brings to the table, I think it would be bad for Amazon.com stock for them to spin it off just because of the the amount of profit that it adds to the business is very, you know, hides a lot of sins of the retail business and a lot of discounting they can do there. So I think it would be somewhat problematic for them to do that. Well, do you think if you were Walmart, you'd, you'd still use the Amazon Web Services cloud if it was spun off? Or, or do you think I mean, the money still rolls up to, to Jeff? I mean, I don't think they care that it runs up to Jeff. I think they would care if it's still partially owned by Amazon. And so if there's any benefit of AWS revenues or ownership going to Amazon, I think that's where they would have an issue. So you'd have to completely sever them. Right, because they could split they could. Um, they could subsidize their retail business with the profits from the money they're getting from their competitors. That's the problem. The key thing would be that, you know, if they were to spin off AWS, you're talking about Andy Jassy most likely being the CEO. Um, they would probably promote someone like Colm to be the CTO or Werner would move over from Amazon.com and they get a different CTO for Amazon. I don't, I, you, know, you don't know how that would split would work, but you can definitely see that it would be as much of a single entity as it could be. You know, and that might take a while to even divorce them apart. It might be years. Yeah, so. I don't think it's going to be a voluntary thing. No, I don't think they're going to do it because they want to do it. They're going to do it because they're going to have to do it. Well, moving on to other news, uh, DigitalOcean has gotten a new CEO and CFO. Uh, they've appointed former SunGrid CEO and CFO Yancey Spruill as the new CEO and former Enernoc CFO Bill Sorensen as the new CFO. Uh, Spruill replaced Mark Templeton, who joined the company about a year ago and who announced his decision to step down for personal reasons in May. Uh, DigitalOcean is a brand I followed and admired for a while. The leadership team has done a tremendous job building out the products, services, and most importantly, a community that puts developers' needs first, said Spruill in today's announcement. We have a multi-billion dollar revenue opportunity in front of us, and I'm looking forward to working closely with our strong leadership team to build upon the current strategy to drive DigitalOcean to the company's full potential. Uh, and you know, you further on in the article, you can see that they talk about the even a small piece of the overall cloud pie can be quite lucrative for a company such as DigitalOcean. Uh, so that would be, be very interesting. But uh, you know, the fact that Spruill and... Uh, you know, the new CFO, they both were in companies that IPO'd and or got acquired by bigger players. Um, I would wonder if DigitalOcean has an exit maybe in its future. Do you think it's likely someone's going to buy them, uh, buy DigitalOcean for their own property though? Maybe they'll just buy them for their documentation. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, IBM's, uh, you know, buried soft layer in the ground so far now. I mean, they need a new cloud provider to bury. So maybe they maybe pick up DigitalOcean as part of the deal. I don't know. Yeah. Which would make me sad if that were to actually happen, because I, I do like DigitalOcean. But uh, overall, I'm glad to see they got a new CEO and new CFO. I'm curious to see where they end up kind of going from here. But uh, I think they're making good strides as being you know, a solid cloud provider that isn't one of the big three. So we'll see. Uh, well, of course, the just Jedi news, uh, as you might expect. <laughs> so, of course, uh, you know Amazon and Oracle and Azure have been in this battle for a while. Oracle suing the government about the bidding process, uh, contending that there was you know conflicts of interest in the bidding process. That was thrown out. We talked about it a couple weeks ago by the judge saying you know that Oracle didn't even meet the basic requirements of the bid, and so they can't be upset about it <laughs> when they don't meet the basic requirements. Uh, but of course, that has now. You know, Larry Ellison was in part of the transition team for Larry uh, for Donald Trump, and so this has now gotten to Donald Trump's ears uh, through various lobbying interests, uh, and he is now out on the out there saying uh, that he has questions about this deal and really wants to take a hard look at it. Uh, so that would be pretty interesting. <laughs> the irony is fantastic, though. I mean, c complaining about conflict of interest when you're one of uh, Donald Trump's best buddies uh, seems to be uh, yeah the the pot calling the kettle black kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Apparently there's a, uh, some document that they've drawn up that has a uh, flow chart and pretty pictures to help 
explain to Donald how all the people are connected and who works for AWS and who works for the DOD and how they all connect. Does it, does uh, it lead to it, it, WMD stores in Iraq, maybe? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. But, uh, but the document's titled, uh, A Conspiracy to Create a 10-Year DOD Cloud Monopoly. It, w- it was drawn in crayon, and it did come with a tinfoil hat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Amazon is not uh, stepping back on this, though. They are hiring a lobbyist with Trump ties uh, to help with them with their contentious Pentagon cloud contest. Uh, They've hired Jeff Miller, a former fundraiser for President Donald Trump, according to a lobbying disclosure form published last week. Uh, Miller Strategies, which is his company, will advocate on Amazon's behalf on issues related to cybersecurity and technology. Uh, So this is their attempt to hopefully try to get in good graces of Mr. Trump to uh, get the bid on their favor. I would hope the law would be in... in, uh the favor of fairness, really. Um, I thought the, the whole premise of the market economy is that the, uh, the government didn't interfere in this way, in those kind of decisions. Well, when the government is the buyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how does, how does the government not interfere with itself? It does muddy the water slightly. <laughs> <laughs> it does, it does. Uh, but hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully this helps kind of balance the favor a little bit. And, you know, there's still a question about if it's going to be, uh, they're going to be able to issue the DOD uh, contract in July. August time frame still, or is this a further delay because Trump is definitely going to take a look at it in a big way. There's also been several uh, other senators and uh, House representatives uh, who've been writing letters to Donald saying they're concerned. So that, lower, that Oracle uh, lobbyist money is hard at work right now trying to get this shot down in multiple ways. I just think it's hilarious because regardless of who wins it, it's not going to be Oracle. They're just wasting their time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is if they had a real fight in the game, then you know, you can maybe argue that this makes sense or... But they just don't. But I mean, I think the big risk to them is that if they don't win the government, who else is going to buy their cloud? <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's a definitely a, the wrong direction for Oracle for them to lose a huge DoD contract, which they've typically been very heavily engaged in in the past. So. Yeah, I never really thought of it as as uh, the government endorsing a particular company for their technology. But I suppose if you think of it that way, it makes sense that people will be arguing to the last second. Even when it gets awarded, it might still get challenged, and there might still be some follow-up issues. I mean, there's been push that they want the DoD should split the contract into multiple parts and award it to multiple providers, and it's you know it's too much risk of a single bidder. Um, similar to KBR Halliburton back in the Iraq War days, you know, is that really the way they want to go? And I, I, I don't know. It's a hard decision to make, and I think the government is going to be struggling long enough just to get onto the cloud, let alone try to get onto multiple clouds. Uh, so I, I recommend they stick with one uh, for the time. Even being, if they went to we'll three. See. Oracle's not inc- going to win any of the top three spots. Well, I mean, against Google, they could potentially, but they'd have to meet the requirements. That's the f- step one. I'd put my money on Google on that one to come in third. I, don't, I just don't know that Google has the federal government certification. I don't think they've done anything with FedRAMP yet. I don't think they've done a lot with um, Top Secret and High. I mean, I'm sure they could quickly. They have the money to do so. Um, but I think this late in the game, for them to change that completely would be yep. hard. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, Visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. 
Well, moving on to uh, some other unfortunate news. Uh, Capital One has been hacked uh, for over 106 million customers affected. Uh, this apparently data breach exposed credit card application data for those who applied from 2005 to 2019. Uh, this affects both U.S. citizens as well as Canadians. Uh, the data leaked includes names, addresses, zip codes, phone numbers, email addresses, date of birth, and self-reported income of those who applied, as well as information like credit score, credit limit, balances, payment history, and information. Uh, for the U.S. people, the social security number was uh, encrypted and tokenized, so it was not exposed. But for Canada, the uh, social insurance numbers were compromised. They did not encrypt those, as they're not required to do so. Transaction data for 23 days it was also obtained from 2016, 2017, and 2018. And an arrest was made in connection with this data Ooh. exposure of an engineer who formerly worked in AWS uh, in Seattle. So <laughs> this is a uh, pretty interesting story that has been burning down the Internet <laughs> for the last uh, 24 to 48 hours here. Uh, you know, one side, I, I feel pretty good that Capital One reported this very quickly. They acknowledged the breach. They addressed it very quickly. Um, and I'm, I'm sure they're looking into things like credit monitoring service and whatnot. But, uh, you know, the fact that this was a compromise, apparently, from the DOG brief that was filed in the arrest... Uh, you know, this person was able to obtain uh, easy to instance uh, role keys from an uh, exposed WAF appliance of some sort, and then use those keys to basically be able to go access S3, list buckets, and pull down data, which is a pretty big violation of least privileged concepts uh, on the Capital One part. So overall, this is going to have a lot of ripples, <laughs> not only in the fintech space, but as well as in just general security, uh, especially with AWS. And I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny put onto the EC2 uh, metadata service and how that gets accessed. Uh, and how you apply roles to it and how you restrict those roles um, has become a big topic of interest for companies here very, very quickly. I think it's pretty funny watching people on Twitter complaining to Capital One about not notifying them first. You know, why, why did I find this out on Twitter instead of from my, my bank? And well, the answer is it was probably kept confidential up until at least the woman had been uh, arrested or taken into custody. But people asking, well, how do I know? How do I know if my data has been lost? Well, I think at 100 million individuals, data being lost, that pretty much counts in everybody who's ever applied for a credit card at Capital One. That's, uh, what did we figure out earlier, Justin? It was like a, th a third of the uh, adult U.S. population. Yeah, definitely. But having said that, we already lost all our data many times before, so there's nothing really new here. Well, that's, yeah. That's Corey Quinn uh, had the best tweet on this, though. They said if this had been Wells Fargo, there would have been 975 million uh, U.S. applications uh, <laughs> <laughs> due to their, uh, their use of uh, fraudulent information for applications. That's funny. <laughs> And I just, you, you hope we get to the point sooner rather than later that social security numbers are considered basically public, i.e. we don't use them for anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that happens at some point in the future too, but it hasn't happened yet and I don't see a big move for yeah. that, but there's got to be a better system. Well, once they're all out there. <laughs> <laughs> right, once they're not yeah. secret, what does it matter? What does it matter? Yeah, so. But yeah, it's interesting to me, this, this hacker, um, and we won't share her name, but you can find it right quickly on the internet. Uh, you know, apparently was able to get this access to this data, was able to exfiltrate it from their network uh, through the you know through VPC. And this is really an Amazon flaw in the fact that you don't you can't really restrict these IAM roles to a, you know just the VP inside of VPC. You can if you get those credentials you can use them really anywhere. But you know then apparently posted it on a public GitHub just uh, bragged about it in a bunch of Slack channels oh, and God. was just very vocal about the fact that she got this information. And uh, you're, you're, it's always fascinating to me because it's like, wow, on one side you you did a pretty impressive hack and on the other side you just completely blundered the back end half of this transaction. To be fair, if you use a VPC S3 gateway, you can apply policies which restrict uh, access to the bucket from only the VPC itself. But presumably 
Capital One have more than one VPC, and we know that I impulse is limited in the size that they can be, and the, the more you scale, the more difficult it is to actually lock things down the way you want. I kind of wonder, it doesn't seem very smart just giving this information out freely on the internet. So do you credit the hacker with uh, actually discovering this, or do you think there was an insider who perhaps gave some information? I think maybe more will come out in the in the trial. Yeah, I'm curious to see if they're, you know, because I'm still confused how she got the EC2 instance metadata. You know, even if the WAF was misconfigured and, they, you know, they were saying the the keys were basically set for a timeout of six hours, which is a configuration choice that Capital One can make. Uh, but then, you know, did she have SSH keys to log into the server that had this data exposed to her? Was the WAF actually presenting the metadata service data out on a, a normal web page? Like, there's a bunch of questions about how she gets the first set. And I get it after she gets the keys, how she gets into the data and how she exfiltrates it. I don't understand how she gets the keys to begin with. And that's the one piece that I'm, I'm hoping either Capital One writes a blog post about it after they fix it <laughs> or, you know, we get some more information in the trial or and I know she's on Thursday this week, she'll be going in front of, um, you know, she'll be basically be getting her um, bail hearing. And so maybe she'll be released on bail. Maybe she'll be back on Twitter uh, bragging about what she did or didn't do. Um, I don't know. We're writing somebody else out <laughs> if there's an accomplice in this whole thing. But, um, you know, definitely there's some questions about what they've released and what's in the DOJ brief. Uh, and there's a lot more questions than I think there are answers right now. Yep. Uh, but I do look forward to, uh, you know, that $125 check from Capital One sometime, <laughs> you know, sometime soon. Like my Equifax, I'll, I'll frame them next to each other. All right, let's move on to AWS news. Uh, so Amazon has released uh, EKS Cuddle or uh, EKS CTL or EKS Control or however you want to call that Cuddle thing. Uh, this is the new EKS CLI. So Amazon reports that when they first released EKS, they had a plan for a more full-featured command line tool. But with the great open source work of the EKS CTL team, the team at Amazon decided to join that project instead of building their own CLI. Uh, so now apparently EKS CTL or Cuddle or Control is now officially the command line for EKS. Uh, Amazon continued to receive positive feedback on the fact they backed an open source project, which uh, they definitely need that win. And then EKS CTL allows you to do uh, create, get, list, delete clusters, create and drain node groups, scale a node group, update clusters, use custom AMIs, your VPCs, spin up clusters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you can also use GitOps to help manage your Kubernetes environment with uh, this EKS Cuddle project. Yeah, I mean, how generous of them to join a project like this, which directly enhances their own service. I mean, <laughs> it's just fantastic. I mean, they did save themselves a two pizza. To they, they, they did. They, those, there's two pizzas they didn't have to pay for. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But why? Why is this its own tool and not built into the rest of the AWS CLI? Why isn't it, you know, AWS EKS? do a thing why is it why is it a separate tool i mean i think the problem with kube control in general is that you end up you know there's a ton of functionality built into that and if you were to rewrite all that functionality into the amazon cli then i don't think you could necessarily make the tools as portable with other kubernetes implementations by using you know it's basically it's a it's a version of kube, kube ctl but with eks kind of built under the hood but all the apis look the same all the commands kind of look the same to other products that are using eks or, or kubernetes and so it kind of helps you bridge that gap without having to understand the Amazon implementation details. You just run your commands as normal as you would for any other Kubernetes project, but just using this command instead, and you get that benefit. I think the real reason is they just didn't want to have to rewrite the thing in Python because uh, it's written in Go. <laughs> I mean, that could be too. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, like, I like to go with a more, the more sophisticated answer of it. It would be more complicated. But, you know, yeah, maybe they're just lazy. They don't want to write Go code. I think so. so. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll go with it. I don't want to write it. Amazon has released a new resource optimization recommendation page. Uh, 
AWS now generates these custom Amazon EC2 resource optimization rec recommendations, calculating ideal configurations based on your past usage using machine learning. Uh, these recommendations are available to you in the Amazon Cost Management Product Suite, and you can identify those opportunities right now in your console uh, with a simple click of the button and estimate your savings, uh, monthly optimizations, as well as your overall uh, payer situation, either at the payer level or at the individual accounts. Uh, it does not support GPU instances, so if you're doing that, this won't help you, and it does not provide reservation recommendations uh, beyond flexible reserved instances, so if you don't like those flexible ones, this won't work for you. Uh, and once you opt in for the service, it does take about 24 hours to do the first uh, generation of the data. Yeah, this is still top three issue with most companies who are significantly in the cloud. So the more tools, the better. Yeah, so it told me for the uh, the CloudPod account that uh, the server's over-provisioned and I could cut it down <laughs> in significant portions. But, uh, you know, disappointing. I, I pay for it on the spot market. <laughs> I pay for it on the spot market pricing, so I don't really care because I'm, I'm only paying pennies per dollar or what it would really cost me, so I don't really care. But, uh, you know, it was a nice recommendation. I appreciate it. I, I know it's been doing a lot of um, cost management investigation recently. And I think one of the things that Amazon don't expose is um, is memory usage by default in CloudWatch. You can get CPU usage easily from the hypervisor, but not memory usage. Um, and I think it's a bit of a miss because even though CPU may be only 40% utilized, memory may be at 95% and we have no way of knowing that. So I, I, I kind of question how... Uh, how useful these kind of recommendations are going to be unless they get further insights into what's actually going on on the machine. Um, well, isn't it if you install the SSM agent, don't you get expanded memory uh, monitoring some of those but things? But does this pull from the SSM? That's the question. I don't know. That's the question. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think SSM stores that data differently. I think it just adds in some CloudWatch agents that have that built into it. Uh, possibly. But uh, I don't know. It seems like it would be an but easy yeah, one, though. I mean, <laughs> like you said, memory is so key. Just go ahead and plug into memory as well for this one particular use case. That's been an issue with CloudWatch, though, since its inception, that they don't really have a good memory monitor built into the plugin. Uh, and I, I'm surprised they haven't fixed that or provided something native. Their, their instructions are always, you know, write your own bit of custom code to do it. Yeah, but the, the um, CloudWatch agent does it, and that's pretty baked at this point. Did you ever get that working? Did they finally rewrite it from that horrendous Perl implementation that they had years ago? Because every time I've tried to install the agent, it's like, got to install this, this uh, CPAN library from 1993 yep. or something, and it always fails miserably. I have not had a problem. That's, that's, my, that's my litmus test for open source projects. If uh, they mention CPAN in the instructions, I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I yeah, have had I mean, no problem with it. There are some things they could do from the hypervisor level. They could at least look at the number of different memory pages that are being touched. Um, but even that's not, probably not enough to be useful. I mean, also disk metrics are not included by default. You could tell if the EBS volume was provisioned, but you couldn't tell how much space was right, actually used. Right, right. You can get all the IOPS, you can get queue depth and all that, but you can't see what's actually being used. Yeah, that's it. that's interesting. I, I came across uh, some EBS volumes earlier, which have been provisioned as uh, pre-provisioned IOPS. And actually, they, the, the, for the size of the, the volume and the number of IOPS that have been provisioned, they were getting worse performance, but paying about three times as much as they would yeah. have done if oh, they just sure. used GP2. Yeah. So I, th I think, uh, yeah, there should be some kind of public announcement like, are you uh, provisioned storage unless you absolutely have to? There's, no, there's almost no reason to. Yeah. There's a couple edge cases. The new CloudWatch agent right now, and it does cover a bunch of the memory stuff. It covers a lot more network details, NetStat, processes... Swap usage, disk space. So yeah, the new the new agent fixes yeah. all your complaints. It's super now. slick. I like it. 
But uh, but my first Google search, which uh, you know, this is the problem with Amazon documents. When I said CloudWatch agent, I went to the old documentation, which said you had to run these terrible Python or Perl scripts to get the data. <laughs> That's so, long. <laughs> but then you, but then on the very top it says you know there's a new CloudWatch agent available, and you can click on that. But uh, this is one of those areas where like please deprecate this old documentation because the first thing that came up to me was the Perl scripts, which is what I remember doing, which was awful. Yeah, I think for the fourth year running, when we go to reinvent this year, we'll have to mention again the quality of this, the ancient support pages that they really just need to. Uh, just trash. I mean, I, I get that they want people who've stored deep links in other pages to always hit a relevant page, but at some point you've got to cut them off and say, no, you know, this this tutorial from from uh, you know like the uh, the NAT gateway kind of era from seven years ago. It's time to shut that thing down and send them somewhere else. Even on this page, I wish they had made the section bold so you know that you should look at it because it, it literally says you know a new multi-platform cloud agent is available. That should be bold and in red. If you still use the old one, then follow the below instructions. But if you're not, go to the new thing because you know using StatsD and CollectD, which is what the new agent's based on, is, is a much better choice. Yep. So. Uh, Stackery uh, IO has now has a new Amazon Lambda Developers uh, serverless local development environment tool for you. Uh, this new tool uh, allows developers to test cloud services on their laptops, and the new tool is free. The new co- tool called is called Cloud Local and works with Amazon Lambda today. Uh, Stackery CTO and co-founder Chase Douglas says the company has essentially found a way to replicate the cloud on the developer's local laptop. Uh, in quotes, we help you take your laptop to the cloud. What I mean by that is that we take some base best practices and tools that Amazon provides which make it possible to run the runtime of your function on your laptop, Douglas explained. Then we add on to that the same permission credentials that your function would use as though it were running in Lambda. Then we go and fetch more about the environment of that Lambda, like environment variable values, which is key for things like service discovery and parameterization. Uh, before having a tool like this, of course, cloud local developers would have to mock services on the laptop, uh, which creates a, a lot of never-ending extra work and might not match the way the code will actually run in production. Uh, so if you're doing Lambda development, uh, local development tool from Stackery might be something to check out. It sounds interesting. I'm not sure how revolutionary it is, given that um, a few months ago we talked about developing in Docker containers before and with things like local stack. It, this has all been possible, but they've wrapped it up nicely into a, an easy-to-use tool, so... And it's, and it's yeah, I, don't, I don't remember if, if local stack actually provide you know pulls in environmental variables or service discovery things uh, about the lambda runtime. So that's that's the thing that I was kind of intrigued about. That was kind of different and new. And so I think that's that's nice. And you know if if local stack isn't working for you, then this might be the right way. Yeah, to I thought the AWS uh, SAM tooling provided a local lambda uh, kind of sandbox. Anyway, it, so. it does, but I mean it, the SAM framework is so. Um, prescriptive and how you have to do Lambda development that I, I don't really care for their the Git flow they use for it. I don't really care for some of the SAM um, you know methods that they want you to use. So I like the idea of having something that's a little less uh, prescriptive and a little just more like, hey, I want to test something and I want to do it quickly. Yep. Yeah. So so is this like a freemium offering? Are they, uh, do they have some other product which they want you to actually buy eventually? Or what's um, what, what, what the, the Stackery... What does the, uh, the Stackery product line actually look like? I mean, you don't give things away for free. That's, uh, that's, no, way to, that's no way to make money. Come on. <laughs> don't you remember 1999? That was a legitimate business model. I mean, it basically looks like it's a, a much better Lambda UI uh, to allow you to build software development across teams and do collaboration on Lambda functions. I mean, they, they have, that's their main product. Uh, the local development thing is, is you know, free, and they definitely want to get you into uh, their platform if you can, but that's not required. Yeah, that's definitely something I'm going to check out. Yeah, I, I think it's worth taking a quick peek at and see if it makes sense for your use case. And if not, local stack is still out there for you. And then, of course, there's uh, Firecracker and a bunch of other ways to run Lambda functions uh, in different ways. So, 
Uh, Amazon has launched their first chatbot uh, for chat ops. Uh, this is a beta launch uh, for the chatbot that plugs right into Slack or Amazon Chime channels and can inform you of issues with your AWS resources. Uh, Amazon has long, of course, offered tools to help you build your own chatbot, but this is the first fully built bot from Amazon directly. The bot hooks into SNS, uh, which, which integrates with CloudWatch, Amazon Health, Budget, Security Hub, GuardDuty, and CloudFormation. Uh, there's a quote here from the product manager, Ilya Bezdelov. Uh, DevOps teams widely use chat rooms as communication hubs where the team's members interact, both with one another and with the systems that they operate. Bots help facilitate these interactions, delivering important notifications and relaying commands from users back to systems. Many teams even prefer that the operational events and notifications come through the chat rooms where the entire team can see the notifications and discuss next steps. Uh, of course, right now you can only receive data from AWS. This is not a way to, you know, that alert says, you know, I need to add more disk space. I can't tell it to go add more EPS disk space to it oh. yet. Uh, but hopefully that'll be coming sometime in the future. So this is a one way uh, from Amazon to you, but it's still better than nothing. More chatbot. I want more chatbot. <laughs> it's a beta release. So, you know, hopefully they get more, much more. Yes. Well, I mean, hackers have been using command and control over IRC for a very long time, so they're, they're halfway to having what the rest of the world's got. I mean, it works with Chime, though. I mean, this is the first chatbot that I know of that works with Chime natively. It'll probably so. be the only yeah. chatbot that works with Chime natively. <laughs> let's let's face it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see a WhoBot plugin for Chime. Lita, maybe enough. Lita. But yeah, no, I think I think the more they get into chatbots and chat ops, I think the better off they're going to be. And if they could build more patterns, I think that's going to be great. So. All those tools you've been building to build your chatbots, uh, you know, now being actually developed into something beyond primitives, I think is super helpful. Yeah. Next week or the week after, there'll be a Amazon certification for chatbot builders. Oh, I'm sure there will be. Yes. Do along with the uh, the cars and the uh, all the other fun things you can build on Amazon that no one uses. <laughs> well, if they ever ship the cars, I would ha be happy to work on the uh, the RoboMaker uh, racetrack thing. But yeah. Yeah, I got, I got a notification that my uh, my car was delayed once again, so I, I don't know if they're ever going to come. Oh, well, my, my, <laughs> my order was canceled oh. accidentally. You know, they, they said, oh, sorry, we didn't mean to cancel everyone's orders. I'm like, really? It's been almost, it's, well, it's like 10 months now, so, or nine months since, since reInvent. And we all ordered it basically from the conference center Well, during the, during the keynote when the thing was announced. And nine months later, we got nothing. And it's been delays, delays, delays. And then they canceled everybody's orders. So I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm done with this. Oh. It seems like it would make it hard to win the uh, competition to win free tickets to reinvent if you don't have the actual car. I mean, I guess the simulator works just as well, but it is kind of a bummer. Yeah, it seems like very, very uh, poor execution. I wonder if they had some like severe cost problems or more or something else. I don't know. It'd be. Well, I mean, if it's like any other Indiegogo campaign, uh, you know, those things never get shipped sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've still got a Kickstarter. Uh, it's it's four years old now. <laughs> Yeah, I have, Unless, a, I have one. I, yeah, they're still promising to, to ship my uh, my stuff eventually. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a, I had a, this wallet that has a built-in battery pack so you can charge your phone with this wallet. And uh, I, I finally emailed them because they said it was supposed to be delivered August last year. And I just emailed them, which is this is a total sidebar. Uh, <laughs> you know, I emailed them and they responded back and said, well, we don't actually know what group you're in. And since we don't know what group you're in, we can't tell you when you're actually going to get the item. But just trust us, it'll eventually be shipped. Nice. And I was like, uh... Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> Just, but every every month they send out an email saying, you know, how they're doing on shipping uh, product out. Hello. And uh, it, it cracks me up because they say, you know, we shipped 800 units this month, and I'm like, okay, but I have no context to what you're saying. Like, for all I know, I'm you know one of 25,000 people waiting, and 800 a month is going to take a long time to get. Yep. To AWS Client VPN now adds support for split tunneling. Uh, as you guys know, Amazon Client VPN was released like four weeks ago uh, and did not support split tunneling, which is a problem uh, for some companies who don't want to pay for the hairpin of traffic to AWS and back to their office locations. Uh, so this gives you more flexibility to determine what goes over that tunnel. 
uh, versus the local internet gateway of the user. Uh, so for non-fintech companies, this is a really nice uh, solution. Uh, for everyone who's in fintech or HIPAA, this is not a good solution, and don't enable this. <laughs> so there you go. I do despise VPNs that um, don't allow split tunneling because all of a sudden you can't print to your local printer. You can't. Mm-hmm. It's a pain. Oh, I hadn't really thought about when that announcement came out was that if you are if you're hairpinning all that traffic to AWS, now you're paying for data transfer yeah. costs uh, for all that VPN traffic, both in and out now. Yeah, so that's super awesome. And I, I would deliberately, you know, listen to YouTube music or some other kind of streaming service just to penalize people for forcing me to use their VPN. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm gonna watch those HD movies over the VPN. Make sure you make sure you download all of your uh, all your Linux distributions. You that's need right, all hundred million laptop. Capital One credit card applications. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that was Jonathan saying that FBI, <laughs> not myself. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, if you want to arrest me, my, my address is... Uh... Amazon Secrets Manager uh, now supports VPC endpoint policies. Um, these VPC endpoint policies make it easier for you to restrict egress of secrets from your Amazon VPC, <laughs> uh, which might come in handy for uh, our friends at Capital One. Uh, so when you create a VPC endpoint for Secrets Manager, you can now attach an endpoint policy to define the Secrets Manager actions that can be performed the secrets these actions can be performed on, and the IAM user or role that can perform the action and the accounts that can be accessed via the VPC endpoint. Uh, this new VPC endpoint capability allows you to meet compliance and regulatory compliance by granularly controlling access to secret manager APIs, uh, which you definitely don't want those to be accessed over the internet, so restrict those down as yeah, soon as possible. That's obviously a high-value-add feature, given the fact that it's a security product. Well, I mean, based on this Capital One thing, I, I hope to see a ton of uh, improvements to metadata security. Maybe that proxy that Jonathan talked about in, I think, episode 17. Uh, we, at least you put a header into it. I'd like to see that become a product. I'd like to see more restrictions capable for IAM roles. And so hopefully we'll see that stuff coming soon yeah. uh, based on this latest uh, oops. I'd like to see. I mean, there is a way to, to, um, to use IP tables just to completely block access to the metadata endpoint. But if you've got root, you can undo that. But... Um, yeah, I mean, just turning off the metadata service completely after 10 minutes or something of an instance running would be fantastic because you've got your keys by then. You don't necessarily need it. Uh, well, but they rotate every 60 minutes if you have the, take the defaults or maybe more frequently or less frequently depending on that timeout. So you can't completely disable it, uh, especially if you're running like SQL Server that needs those credentials to talk to uh, some other service. Yeah, SQL Server. Or, <laughs> or, or if you need a web server to talk to a SQL Server and RDS, you, those are being rotated on, on often. So. Wow. There's there's reasons you can't just turn it off, Jonathan. I That's should put right. my secrets in Secret Manager then, instead of using the message endpoint. Then it's just. Uh... Uh, yeah, I mean, if you could put I am. I mean, yeah. <laughs> why aren't I am roles available to me in Secret Manager? Wow. Then I'm gonna have access. Oh, it's just turtles all the way down. Uh, Amazon has announced the new Amazon Middle East Bahrain region uh, today, announcing the immediate availability of this region. Uh, which is the first region in the Middle East and consists of three availability zones, so you don't have any of those split brain problems. This now brings Amazon's total global regions to 22 and 69 availability zones. Uh, so that's pretty nice. Uh, they had not had released pricing for this region yet as of press time, and so uh, I'll have an update for you guys hopefully next week when they have the pricing up to date. But uh, not all the services are there, so of course uh, do check out the regional project product and services page on Amazon's website to determine which services are available to you on launch day. And now we'll have a new flood of lightning round uh, topics about new features that are not new features being announced in the East Bahrain, there uh, the East Bahrain region. Yeah, um, so. I'm pretty sure they're going to have every feature that the oil and gas industry uh, needed when they decided to build the data center there. Hey, what about the... F yes, there, uh, there was a lot of machine learning uh, components I noticed in the list. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. So, and no what about surprise. the Formula One race? I think it's all for the Formula One race. Oh, oh Peter. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> the Formula One does not pay the Amazon bills, let me tell you. 
All right, let's move on to Google News. Uh, so Google is partnering with VMware to bring virtualized workloads to GCP, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's actually a uh, VMware partner uh, that is the same Cloud Simple LLC, which is the same partner that brought it to Azure. Uh, the service is being offered uh, for you on top of Google as well as Azure, if you remember that episode, uh, and now provides VMware, NSX-T, vCenter, and vSAN capabilities to migrate your workload to the cloud on both GCP and, of course, Azure a few months back. So uh, this is their VMware's way of, I think, getting around some maybe some non-compete agreements they have with AWS to uh, build uh, VMware on AWS. <laughs> they just have a partner, <laughs> yeah, really. uh, is my guess. And so uh, this is nice. So now if you're using one of the hyperscalers, you can move your VMware workload there uh, pretty simply. So nice for those uh, legacy shops that don't want to replatform. Yeah, I guess like step-by-step step, VMware are slowly giving away their entire business. Who needs all these tools once you're on the cloud? So. Uh, then uh, Google also released a new blog post uh, about how to learn GCP by setting up a kid-controllable Minecraft server. And this is just a fun article. Um, you know, there's a lot of us here in the office who love Minecraft and uh, have kids who love Minecraft. And so this is a full uh, write-up by one of their solutions architects uh, who basically who's worked at multiple cloud providers. And every time he goes to a new cloud provider, he learns it by uh, building out a Minecraft solution. So uh, in this solution, he leverages compute, cloud storage, cloud functions, and firewalls. Uh, to enable his kids and friends to easily start and stop the Minecraft server as well as run the main server components. Uh, and this is a fun way to learn clouds, and your kids will love you for it if you follow his instructions. So uh, pretty pretty fun blog post, just uh, something a little bit more light for our day of Capital One hacks. Yeah. <laughs> I guess if you'd used Docker, you could just have done it once for all three platforms. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> right, exactly. I was wondering that, too. I was like, well, if you just put this on Kubernetes, you could have solved a lot of problems. Yeah. So maybe, he can, uh, maybe he can update it to use Anthos uh, at some point. I got a Minecraft server running in AWS, and it shuts down automatically when when there's no uh, network connections open to it, and I trigger I trigger the power on um, from root 53 public DNS. You can you can um, CloudWatch logs all the DNS queries that hit your uh, your public zones, and so if the server's turned off and somebody does a DNS lookup on my server address, it EC2 powers up the machine and it runs until we finish playing. That's awesome. Sh That's shuts cool. itself down again. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Um, the nice thing about that, so, you know, he uses cloud functions to kind of do that in the solution, but uh, one thing he had on there, he also built cloud functions to invite their friends. Uh, so if they have friends who want to play with him on their Minecraft server, they can just go to a little web form and submit that in, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's, pr that's pretty good. Yeah, so you could you should improve your stru your structure with Lambda. And, uh, do that I just I don't have enough friends to worry about that kind of thing. <laughs> 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 indeed, indeed. All right, moving on to Azure news. Uh, Azure has uh, published guidance for secure cloud adoption by the governments. Of course, this is all in preparation for Jedi. <laughs> and so they, uh, they provided a set of guides, digital transformation, uh, new solutions, and selecting architectures that will help, them help governments transition many of their workloads to the cloud. Uh, they hope to give answers to common cloud security-related questions. Uh, and Microsoft has published a new white paper called Azure for Secure Worldwide Public Sector Cloud Adoption, which is a mind-numbingly boring article. But uh, the paper covers common isolation and security concerns pertinent in the public sector customer cloud environments. Um, and also explores technologies available to Azure to help safeguard unclassified confidential and sensitive workloads in the public multi-tenant cloud, and as well as using the Azure Stack and Azure Databox Edge uh, deployed on-premises, how you can use it for fully disconnected scenarios for highly sensitive data. Uh, some of the concerns they cover, data residency and data sovereignty, government access to the customer data, data encryption, access to customer data by Microsoft personnel, threat detection, private and hybrid cloud options, cloud compliance certifications, and conceptual architectures for classified workloads. Uh, so if you're in the government trying to get onto Azure, uh, do check out these resources for you today. Uh, so LinkedIn's uh, decided to go all in on the cloud, and can you guys guess uh, which platform they might be choosing? GCP. 
Is it the least reliable platform? Uh, it software. is software. 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 I was thinking Oracle Cloud, but uh, you know, but uh, no, no. LinkedIn is moving, of course, all of its data to the public cloud on top of Microsoft Azure, who is their owner, uh, and so you didn't have to. They didn't have to look too far to find the right provider for them. Uh, the SVP of engineering, Mohawk Shroff, wrote that the company is embarking on a multi-year migration of all workloads to Microsoft Azure. Uh, moving to Azure will give us access to the wide array of hardware and software innovations on unprecedented global scale, Shroff wrote in the post. This will position us to focus on areas where we can deliver unique value to our members and customers. Uh, today, apparently, LinkedIn operates about five data centers, including a primary corporate DC, three more in the U.S., and one in Singapore. Uh, and they've written an entire blog post on the engineering blog for LinkedIn uh, detailing their plans and how they're going to move to the cloud. So uh, if you're interested in what LinkedIn's going to do, uh, you know, the, the creators of Kafka and a bunch of other services, uh, do check that out uh, on the website. Well, maybe once they move to the public cloud, they can afford to reduce their premium membership from, what is it, like $30, $40 a month down to something more palatable. Uh, I was grandfathered in on the premium thing a long time ago, so I, I'm still paying, I think, $150 a year for LinkedIn Premium that you know, they don't offer to anybody else anymore because I just keep nice. doing it, and so I will hold on to that till my cold head, you know, my cold dead hands uh, give it up. But uh, you know, I, I've been able to expense it the last few years, and every time someone asks me like, "Why do you have this?" I'm like, "Because it's so cheap that you don't want me to pay for it in the real price, which is like $400 a month." So <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, I, I, I'm saving you lots and lots of money. I, I guess when I get the executive salary, and uh, it wouldn't wouldn't bother me too much, but not yet. And I have some friends over LinkedIn who uh, are on the cost side, and I'm curious to pick his brain someday about what they're doing because uh, LinkedIn's architecture is very complicated, uh, unsurprisingly. Yeah, this uh, I can only imagine it's going to be great feedback for the Azure product teams, and uh, both on the reliability as well as functionality side, to have a great use case like this, sort of driving them driving features forward that they need. Well, it'd be a really great, um, very large Java, Linux shop moving on to Azure, right? Where most, most of Microsoft technologies which are already on Azure are all .NET products. So they'll definitely get a lot of interesting uh, lessons learned and maybe some new technologies will come out of Azure because of this. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm just glad they practiced uh, the migrations on their paying customers like Carlsberg and uh, who else did we mention a couple, a couple of weeks ago before, before yeah, they started to move their own stuff. It's uh, very, very good of them. Yeah, very nice. You think they're getting a deal on their cloud hosting for Azure? Do you think they're getting a discount? Probably not. No, they're probably, they're probably right off as much as they possibly can. <laughs> probably so, probably so. Uh, Microsoft has acquired data privacy and governance service provider Blue Talon. Uh, Blue Talon apparently is a company that helps enterprises set policies for how employees can access their own data. According to Crunchbase, they had previously raised uh, $27.4 million uh, from several investors. Uh, and Varohan Kumar, Microsoft's corporate VP for Azure Data, says the IP and talent acquired through Blue Talent brings a unique expertise at the apex of big data, security, and governance. This acquisition will enhance our ability to empower enterprises across the industries to digitally transform while ensuring right of use of data, centralized data governance at the scale through Azure. Uh, this new Blue Talent team will become part of the Azure Data Governance Group, and uh, will be pretty interesting to see what they come out with this product uh, in the future. Didn't say how many employees they were, did it? They got 50, I think. 50? Yeah. Yeah, it's not very yeah, big. pretty small. Yeah. But, you know, data governance and data security in the days of Capital One breach are uh, very Good important. brains. So, yeah, good, for them. good brains. They, uh, they were able to announce this purchase before the Capital One breach was announced. So, you know, yeah, Microsoft looks like they're yeah. ahead of the game. Well, that's it uh, for new news. Uh, we did change the format a little bit this week with uh, kind of segmenting up Azure, Google, and Amazon. What do you guys think? Is that a, you know, if you guys don't like it out there in podcast land, uh, do send us feedback. But uh, we thought we'd make it a little bit simpler for you guys to follow along at home. 
But uh, off to the lightning round, Peter. I thought it was yeah, great. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, me too. I'm glad yes. you liked it, Peter. I think it, I think it makes sense. And then if we ever get sophisticated enough to do podcast chapters, we could just chapter them and then people could skip the club. There you go. <laughs> Actually, it's a great idea. <laughs> cool. Lightning round. AWS backup will now automatically copy tags from resources to recovery points. <laughs> I, I, this is one of those things like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So glad you guys came up with that one. Like, I, I guess I didn't realize that I just had this huge pool of recovery points that I couldn't tell what they were because they're probably using a GUID of some sort. So now at least I can copy a tag to them. That's that's super Yeah, cool. they almost implemented all the features that I had to write in that Lambda function a couple of years ago. So <laughs> I'm just hoping hoping they're going to finish slowly it. Slowly but surely getting there, Jonathan. You'll be able to kill I, Snap. I'm, seriously, I'm just hoping they finish it off before I have to do any more work on that thing because I, I hate going back to code I've written six months or a year ago and I think, who, who on earth wrote this junk? <laughs> yeah, it was me. <laughs> I, I do the same thing. So I, I, feel your I, I do that with whiteboards. When I walk into a room, I'm like, oh my God, that's my writing. New AWS certification exam vouchers, making certifying groups easier. I mean, thank God I can finally bulk, bulk purchase exam vouchers. Who would have thought that I want to do that as an enterprise? I was, I was thinking maybe it was easier to certify because like they take your average and then everybody passes. <laughs> everyone, who, everyone who pays for the exam gets average together. So make sure you take yeah, all the smart exactly. people. <laughs> AWS Budgets announces AWS Chatbot integration just in time. Oh, thank God. Now with the new Chatbot, I, every service can announce Chatbot integrations to keep that uh, number of new services going up, up, up on the chart. Yeah, there's nothing like trying to improve your budget than by paying for an additional service to tell you how much you're spending. To warn you that you went over budget, but there's nothing you can do about it. Super helpful. New Google features for BigQuery. New persistent user-defined functions, increased concurrency limits, GIS and encryption functions, and much, much more. You know what you really need for concurrency limits? Not one million concurrency limits, but one billion <laughs> concurrency limits. Excellent. Uh, AWS EFS encryption for data in transit has a new configuration update. I just had to implement this. You get to break all of your NFS uh, control points because of 1.2 TLS. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you mean no more stunnel? Nope, no more stunnel. But uh, you had to rip all the infrastructure out in at first. So they don't call them breaking changes anymore. They just call them configuration updates. Yeah. I, I see how it is. <laughs> Amazon ECR now supports immutable image tags. Who's really worried about people changing the image tags? that a really a problem that people need them to be immutable I, I, it's a little weird well maybe if you don't want someone changing a tag like from release candidate to prod and then it automatically gets pushed to prod because of your automation i don't know what you're talking about i just use latest <laughs> what, what i don't know if, if you're gonna if you're gonna start using tags for for security purposes which is what this drive has been for the last few months why do you need immutable tags just make it so people can't edit the the existing ones like to implement that whole separate class of tags just seems like you don't ha don't have confidence in your own in your own product i mean if i am permissions are going to be based off tagging then you can have more situations where your waf exposes data more more ways to burn yourself very quickly nah, i mean if if uh if a resource had an on that was already an immutable tag it seems unnecessary well there you go amazon msk Managed Services for Kafka is now PCI DSS compliant. I'm so glad I can now send untokenized data of my credit cards to all of the services that don't actually need it uh, because it's now PCI DSS compliant. Yeah. Yay. That's weird, right? I mean, if you don't know who the consumers are of your streams, how can you certify that the, uh, the tool itself is compliant? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's... <laughs> I mean, I, I guess this is the equivalent of, uh, what, what is that? Uh, it's similar to, like, Square Cash app, but it's, oh, it's Venmo. Like, just, you know, it's the same thing as Venmo. You know, that way you can just send all your transactions to all your friends over a Kafka PSI DSS compliant transaction stream. So, there you go. You know, everyone can know what all your transactions are. AWS CloudWatch logs insights as cross-log group querying. Wow. We are stunned. I'm just, we are gonna, all stunned. I was going to let I was going to let Jonathan talk about it cuz he was he was excited to talk about it so I was letting him go and then he just he just didn't say I was anything. I was just being polite and waiting. I was waiting for you. You you first. Let's try this again. First. AWS CloudWatch logs insights adds cross log group querying. This can only be a good thing because the the console sucked for trying to find things in multiple log streams especially from Lambda and things like that but this is great. I'm so happy that we've got cross account cross region queries for CloudWatch logs now. It's it's what it needed to be all along. I mean, I, I'm super happy that I don't have to go search per log group for my 100 cluster web server to find the one log that has the transaction that failed. So I can now search all 100 web server log groups. Yep. So that's nice. AWS Spot instances now available for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. But IBM love this. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this must be an IBM thing because yeah. Red Hat hadn't done this before. Is it good for... Good or bad? I guess it's good. I guess it's good, right? They get paid for every minute. I mean, they, it's up. In the spot instance pricing, you you still pay full right. license price. You just yeah. yeah so All right. Fine. AWS temporary queue client for Amazon SQS client has been released. But if I have a client for SQS, I want it to be a client all the time, not just temporarily. <laughs> well, <laughs> temp to perm, temp true. to perm uh, client maybe. <laughs> temp to perm. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I mean, actually, I really like this announcement because uh, one of the pain points of doing anything with message buses uh, from you know Kafka or Kinesis or the new uh, EventBridge or even SQS, you know, you had to write the queuing mechanism, you had to write all that logic into your application. So now, by Amazon providing this as part of the SDK, um, it kind of handles that temporary queuing in case SQS isn't available or whatever else. So this is this is actually very nice because it kind of takes away a pattern that people were reinventing multiple times, and uh, globally optimizes it for all customers, which is nice. Cool. You can now use AWS Systems Manager maintenance windows to select resource groups as targets. The Systems Manager thing, can we talk about this for one second? Like, can they make this product strategy coherent in any way? Like, I can't tell if this is a patching solution or it's a maintenance solution. It's an access management solution. It's a monitoring Configuration solution. management. It's, Don't forget configuration management. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then, like, last week we talked about it can, it can uh, do build deployments. Like... An artifact hosting. I, I, there's so much this thing does now that I can't even keep track of it. Can like, and its branding is horrendous. Yeah, well, call me a pessimist, but I think systems manager is becoming a great vector for uh, for hackers. Mm, yeah, 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 for sure. Azure blog post on how to use their new Azure Bastion host. Now, Jonathan, how long have you been doing Linux admin work? Uh, about 25 years. <laughs> when when was the first time you used a Bastion host? <laughs> uh, about 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So, so all Linux people have been using Bash and Host since, the, since Linux became a thing. So only Microsoft can have the audacity to believe that people need a blog post on how to, write, how to use a Bash and Host. Because in their world, Bash and Hosts are new because they only understand RDP. And the, the audacity of having a blog post on this for something that's been around for 25 years, a minimum, and probably longer than that, because Jonathan is not, you know, he's not an old man. Not yet. Uh, is ridiculous <laughs> in all accounts. <laughs> yes. New digital course on Coursera, AWS Fundamentals of Security Risk. Now fundamental training for all Capital <laughs> One employees. No! How did I know you were going to say that? 
I was going to say exactly the same thing. If, if he gets a point for this, <laughs> I, want, I want a half a point each. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even including it. I'm not, it was too easy. Too, it was too, too easy. easy. Too yeah. big of a softball. Not included. <laughs> I thought my Azure Bastion host one was good, though. I think it dings. I don't know. Uh, I'm keeping – I'm, yes. I'm – uh, I'm a little tongue-tied, but I have a couple in my brain. Sorry about that. Announcing GA for Azure Security Center for IoT. Because everyone wants to secure their millions of devices that are out in the field that they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. So, good. Good. Thank you. Amazon ECS services now support multiple load balancer target groups. Oh, nice. Bad time. <laughs> Bad time on this one for sure. Like the like, this is so frustrating. Like, I need to point two load balancers to it. Well, you can't do it natively. You have to set it up manually, and then it never worked properly because, of course, the ports change every time the container bounces, and then it doesn't work. So you end up writing multiple services, which now costs you more money to run to do a simple thing that should have been there two years ago. EBS volume type is updated to GP2. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't realize that that was not the default, but apparently it's only the default if you don't specify it at right. launch time in the CLI. Uh, but in the console, it's been the default for, I don't know, a year or two now. <laughs> yeah. So I, when I read this at first, I was like, I don't, I don't get this one. But then I, I read the thing. If you don't specify the instance type or volume type in your launch config of the CLI, it'll default now to GP2. So you're yep. welcome. I think, I think when they change default settings like this, I think it's just an indication that to use the old default actually costs them more money than to use the new default. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure that's the case. And, you know, magnetic disk at this point in time is probably getting more and more expensive for them to make the default. I'm sure. Amazon EC2 on-demand capacity reservations shared across multiple AWS accounts. There's nothing like sharing your reserve capacity with other people. Yeah, other people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, open it up. I mean, I'm so glad. I mean, this, the fact that this wasn't a thing, though, when they launched this feature was silly. Because, you know, if you are doing DR and you are you going to really want to do it at the account level or are you going to want to do it at the organizational payer level? And if you're doing true DR, do you want to have an account separation there? So the capacity reservation in the specific account didn't really make sense anyways, but yeah, I'm glad they did it. That's, you, I think you just scared a whole bunch of people because p people who run big workloads in one region think that they can fail that over to another region at a moment's notice. They're forgetting that everybody else right. in that region is also going to fail over their stuff to, you know, to US East 1 or US East 2 or something else, and that if you want to guarantee... Uh, capacity for for your for your workload, you got to pay for it. You got to pay, you gotta for, pay it. for it up front, whether you're using it or not. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mention that. Yeah. That's not in the small print. That's not, that's not in the. That's <laughs> not in the architect <laughs> test either. It is not. <laughs> uh, can I just say that you were both extremely uh, entertaining tonight? I enjoyed. Is I think our lightning hour was a little long tonight, but you guys made it super enjoyable. Uh, that said, I have one billion reasons to give Justin the win. Okay. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm on a losing streak, so I was kind of feeling like you were, maybe we're just trying to get Jonathan caught up to me. One billion reasons. Although I think you could have done the voice right. a little better. I probably could have. But I forgot so, to ding it. I still have a head cold. I, I still haven't quite shaken that head cold uh, from Rome yet. So. <laughs> it's a little bit out of my, my comfort zone. Well, thanks, guys. It was a fantastic show, as usual. Uh, and we will see you guys next week. Hi, see ya. Have a great night. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm -hmm.